Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and chapter 4. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to reframe. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep away and a time to throw away. A time to uh, tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does, does it so that men will revere him. Whatever ha- is, has already been and what has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see they are like animals. Man's fate is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. One dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of an animal goes down down into the earth. So I saw that nothing is better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he that has not yet been who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labour and all achievements spring from man's uh, envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquillity than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again I saw something meaningless under the sun, There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. 
yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Good morning and uh, happy Father's Day to all of those of us who are dads. And uh, I hope that um, you've been enjoying the first part of uh, the letter to Ecclesiastes. Uh, For those of you who weren't here last week, we saw that Ecclesiastes is uh, a pretty hard-hitting book and it's directly asking the question, can we make for ourselves a perfect life on earth? Can we overturn the consequences of the fall and make heaven on earth? And the writer started off with a double barrel shotgun uh, the answer is no and no no because we are uh, uh, fleeting human life is fleeting and secondly because all human achievement is ultimately futile it ends in death and so we have to as he says enjoy each day as a gift from God whatever God gives us for that day um, but that does raise another question if we can't eradicate evil on earth If we can't create the perfect life on earth, then how do we live with it? I don't mean what do we do. Of course, we fight oppression, we fight injustice, we fight evil. That's our duty as human beings. Every human being has the responsibility to fight evil. But I mean emotionally. How do we cope with the ongoing battles of struggle uh, and struggles of, of, of evil? Injustice, oppression, wrongdoing, violence... How do we respond emotionally to the continuance of those things? Are we surprised every time we hear something bad in the news? How could that happen? Are we shocked? What kind of a person does that? Are we depressed? Oh, there's no hope for humanity. How do we respond to the perpetuity of evil in the world? And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and 4 is going to invite us to take a, a, a big step back and look at life and all of the things that are wrong in life from the perspective of time. In chapter 3, he says, we're going to look at all of the wrongdoings, all of the, the, the whole of the way the world works from the perspective of time. There's a time for this and a time for that. And he's going to invite us to see that there's a kind of beauty in all of that. And then secondly by sensing the eternity of things. He says the the fantastic part about 
of, of letting go of the tight grip that we try to hold on, on life and try to control it, the great part about letting go of that and trying to manipulate God into giving you a perfect life is that you can start to enjoy the rhythm of life that God sends. You can start to enjoy the ups and the downs, the cold and the hot, the sun and the dark. You can see a kind of rhythm and sense of seasons and beauty in that. Instead of trying to preserve and perfect your paltry existence, you can see the stars and sense God's sovereign control and arrangement of everything in your life. And then in chapter 4, he's going to help us to see suffering through the lens of friendship and companionship and the importance of that. So, let's kick off. Chapter 3. First he says there's a time for every activity and every deed under the sun. And that's in the first three verses of chapter 8. And he does that by showing us 18... Sorry, 14 polar pairs, not polar bears, but 18 polar pairs of things that have their polar opposite. Now, as you know, in Hebrew thinking, seven is the perfect number, and we've got 14, and that's because there's two of everything. That is, God has arranged everything perfectly in our life, whether it is A or B, C or D, E or F. And he goes through this list of examples A time to be born, a time to die. A time to kill, a time to heal. To weep, to laugh, to mourn, to dance, and so on, and so on. And what he's showing us is that the way that God runs the world and and controls the world is that he's woven all of the dark and the light elements of our life into part of his perfect plan. Like a great tapestry Tapestries, of course, have multiple threads. If it was all white, it wouldn't be a tapestry. It would just be a rug. But a tapestry has different colours. It has both light and dark. And if you look too close, you can't see the pattern. But when you draw back, you can see, now that is beautiful. And the way that God weaves the ups and downs, the seasons, the rhythms of life is a beautiful thing, he says. Everything has its time. In fact, what does he say? In verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And it's only when you look back, when you, you draw back, you step back and look at your life as, it, as, as it's unfolded, that sometimes you can see that. You can see, actually, what I thought was a dark period was actually God working something wonderful. I remember I went on a holiday in Vietnam on a motorcycle. I took two weeks and I rode from Hanoi in a sort of a circuit up into the mountains towards the border of China and back. And uh, I had some terrible experiences in that, in, that, in that sense of terrible, some real disasters. My motorcycle broke down one day. I stopped to help someone who couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak Vietnamese, so of course I wasn't able to do anything for them at all. But my motorcycle fell down while I was helping them and the clutch broke. So I had to drive without clutch to the nearest repair, uh, repair man, and he was asleep. So um, I left the motorcycle there, and the neighbours said, come on in, and they gave me breakfast. And I was tempted to sing that line, I come from a land down under, but they wouldn't have understood. Anyway, the next day, uh, my bicycle, motorcycle was repaired, and I just 
rode up again into the hills and discovered this secret cave with emerald green waters. And when I look back on it, that was the best holiday I'd ever had, but it was, it was the things that went wrong which made it right, which made the holiday memorable. If every day was perfect, it would have been the most boring holiday and people would have been utterly bored when I described it to them. Oh, it was a great holiday. What happened? Well, every day was perfect. Mm-hmm. It sounds great. But it's the things that go wrong and then that go right that, make, that made it you know, fascinating and interesting and an adventure. And life is like that. If every day is perfect, then that's a boring life, isn't it? And too many of us, I feel, try to flatten life out. We want every day to be perfect. We want every day to be comfortable. I want to have the right food that I like. I want to um, go where I want to. I want everything to be just the right way it is for me. And if you try to live that way, you're going to be unbearable to live with. But you're also going to be um, miserable. Because you can't control life. You can't. Because God has made everything right in its time. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to weep and a time to sing. And learning to live, go with the flow and, and accept the things that God sends us is, is a liberating way of life. I don't know if you've ever been on a roller coaster, but... Um, there's a big mistake if you get on a roller coaster. You shouldn't hold on tight. I remember going on one on, on Luna Park and we got on it. It was one of these ones that sort of spins around and then goes upside down. And at the beginning, I was holding on very tight. It was so uncomfortable. And then I looked across and I saw my friends' faces and they were all laughing and, and having fun. And I thought, I'm just going to let go and see what happens. And I did. And I let go and it was totally different. It was so much more fun. And if you try to control and hold tight and try to make life perfect, you're going to be very, un- very miserable, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes. Let the seasons come and go as God brings them. Then he moves on to show how actually there's a sense of eternity in all of our hearts that testifies that the injustice and the evil of this world is going to be resolved. It's going to come under God's judgment. So look in verse 9. He, asks, he returns to his original question from chapter 1. What does the worker gain from all his toil? And he restates his theme in verse 12. There's nothing better to be happy and to do good while they live. Now here he's introduced the idea of doing good. If you remember in chapter 1 he said, there's nothing better than to live and work and enjoy your food. But now he says, live and, in, in, live and work and enjoy your food and do good while you live. And that's because he's building a case for the judgment of God. That the goodness of, of, of life is to be enjoyed with the view that God is going to judge the world. That's what constrains our enjoyment or controls our enjoyment of life. We don't enjoy it as though we are God. We enjoy it as though God is God. And that's a different kind of enjoyment. So doing, doing good, he says, is part of the way that you, you live when, uh, when you know that God is eternal and that God <clears throat> will judge the world. He says that because in verse 11, God has set the knowledge of eternity in our hearts. You look at that with me in verse, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. <clears throat> But he's also set ignorance 
in the human heart. The last part of verse 11, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So in us, in every single one of us, there's enough knowledge of God to know that death is not the end, that there is an eternity waiting for us and that there will be a reckoning. But he's also set enough ignorance to keep us humble and make us fear God and trust him and not to approach that day with arrogance and confidence. We can't even fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So he says in, in, that, in that sense, every single human being knows that they will be judged, that eternity is not the end, that God will bring into, in, in, into um, that God will call an account of everything that anyone has ever done. My sister became a Christian about 18 months after me and I was, for that first 18 months, a real irritant for her, uh, looking back. I kept talking to her about God's judgment and uh, it got to the point where she said, just shut up about God's judgment, will you? And uh, I I thought I probably should. I, I think she's probably heard enough of it by now. And so I did. But her conscience didn't shut up. Her conscience kept annoying her until the day when she had a near fatal Well, she didn't have an accident, but she nearly had an accident and it would have been fatal if she had. Her car went into a spin uh, like this and into oncoming traffic and nothing happened. But she said to herself that day, "That that was a warning from God that I need to get right with him now. So that following Sunday, she went to church and became a Christian. But the point is, she had that knowledge of eternity in her already. I didn't need to give it to her. I was just prodding it and poking it and making her aware of it. And every single human being knows that. When we speak to people of God's judgment, we're not telling them something they don't already know. They know it already. We're just reminding them, you will stand before God one day, as I will, all of us will. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says that that is part of our... Uh, the way that we deal with the injustice in the world. We know innately that God will make it right one day. Everyone knows that. And the sense of eternity in our hearts testifies that there will be a reckoning. And he also says in the, second, the last part of chapter 3 that he, he knows that because there's, everything is beautiful in its time, but he observes there's one thing which is not yet beautiful. If you look at in chapter 3 verse 16, he says, I saw something else under the sun. Something is in the wrong place. He says, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Now that's not beautiful. There's supposed to be justice, but there's not. There's supposed to be uh, judgment, but there's not. And then by that he knows, ah, verse 17, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked for there will be a time for every activity. And that, so that first poem in chapter 1, sorry, in verses 1 to 8, that first poem really establishes for us that there's a right time for everything and now he returns to that and says, that's why I know there's a right time for judgment because God has made everything perfect in its time. <clears throat> and he says, we've become like the animals. Um, So human beings are not supposed to die. 
but we become like the animals. And <clears throat> after that is judgment. I don't know if you heard about um, a woman called Lucy Letby recently. She's a nurse who has recently um, condemned or judged in the uh, British courts for killing seven babies and attempting to kill a further six. She was a, a midwife or a nurse. She was in neonatal care. And um, she was supposed to be there caring for these little babies, but she was killing them. She tried to kill 13, and she succeeded in killing seven. Now, there's, some, there's a, a great example for me of where there should have been justice, where there should have been care, where there should have been kindness, but there was evil, and there was nothing beautiful about that yet. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says that will, there will be a reckoning for what Lucy Letby did. There will be a time when God rights the wrongs of this age, when he takes vengeance on all evil. And that will be beautiful when God brings the world into judgment. I know we're used to thinking about judgment in terms, in kind of negative terms, of thinking, oh, well, God's judgment is coming, that's a bad and scary thing. Uh, but we need to reverse that thinking. God's judgment is a good thing. It's the beautiful counterpart of what's wrong in this life. It's the time when God rights the wrongs of this world, when he rectifies and takes recompense on everything that is wrong. It's the day, the time, when the hebel, the vanity, the meaninglessness, the mist and dust of this world is replaced with substance, with eternity, with righteousness and glory. And in the meantime, it's possible, I think, for us to be calm when we see evil in the world. To be calm and know that God will right those wrongs rather than panicking and getting shocked and getting surprised. Yeah, evil will continue. Don't panic. God is going to do something about it. He's going to make it right. When you see multinational corporations hoarding the world's wealth, manipulating the poor, holding them into, in, in poverty so that they can pocket uh, their loose change, you look evil in the eye and say, God's going to make that right. He will. There's a time for God's judgment. But he says... Don't just do it, don't just wait for God's judgment. In the meantime, keep each other, comfort each other. That's the whole part of the point of chapter 4. In this short, misty life, make sure you don't do it alone. Invest in real relationships until the day God makes everything right. That's all that really matters between now and then. And, we, and he says that in three ways. The first part of chapter 4 Loneliness is worse than oppression. Chapter 4, verse 1. I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. He repeats that phrase, they have no comforter, to remind us that the one thing worse than being oppressed is being alone. 
And he says, if you're going to be oppressed, it's actually better to be dead than if you're alone and oppressed. And uh, as kind of bizarre as this sounds, he says, you know who's best off in the world? Someone who's not been born yet because they haven't seen any evil and they haven't had to endure anything alone. I've seen a little bit of oppression and corruption myself in my time. When I lived in Vietnam, I witnessed an entire system of corruption from the street cop to the prime minister and the president, this enormous chain of corruption, every single one of them. Their entire society is built, well, their entire administration is built on corruption and exploitation. But according to the writer of Ecclesiastes, there's actually something worse than that, that's being alone and suffering that. Um, Recently I saw an an interview with... um, a missionary, a medical missionary in Africa. His name is Andrew Browning. And um, he was an, he's an oncologist. Um, I think he, he fixes problems with a bladder and uterus for women, whatever the name for that type of doctor is, I'm not sure. And uh, he was telling, telling a story about this one woman who came and she'd had a fistula, which is where an infection in the bladder and the bowel, and basically she'd, she'd lost control of her um, bladder. And uh, she came to him and he was really, he operated on her and when he was talking with her afterwards through a translator, he said, I'm, I'm really sorry, we've done everything we can. Um, we tried to reconstruct it, but it was so badly damaged from the infection that you're still going to have a problem with incontinence. And uh, she replied, out of all the people I've met, this place and this hospital are different. She said, uh, you've helped me to stand when no one else would come near me because I smelt. You helped me onto the operating table and off again. You helped me get in and out of bed. And you've loved me. And that's enough. That's what she said. Now, she wasn't oppressed in the sense of the powerful people oppressing her, but she hit something, which I think Ecclesiastes is reminding us, that how do you cope with the suffering and evil of this world? If you're loved, you can do it. It's enough. But if you're alone, better off not to be born, he says. Secondly, he says, companionship is better than success. If you look at verse 4, he observes that all labor achievement spring out of jealousy and man's envy of each other. And he says, what an utter chasing after the wind. Verse 5, he has a modification of conventional wisdom. So verse the first part of verse 5 is conventional wisdom. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. In other words, if you're lazy, you'll be poor. But he tweaks that and he says, yeah, but better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Yeah, if you're, if you're a, uh, a lazy, you'll be poor. But on the other hand, he says, verse 7, I saw something meaningless. There was a man all alone, had neither son nor brother, no end of his toil, yet his eyes were not content with all his wealth. And he goes on to show how two is better than one um, because they can keep warm, they can overcome challenges together all the way through to verse 12. And this is a sobering and penetrating thought, I think especially for us, for us men, Uh, Men are driven by challenges and achievement, but Ecclesiastes says, uh, if if you're doing all that and at the end of the day you're lonely, 
then what an utter waste of a life. It's entirely possible to spend all your days toiling and chasing after the wind, chasing one success to the next and neglecting your family, your wife, your church brothers and sisters. Do you know how many people get to the end of their life and wish they'd spent more time working? Nobody. (laughs) Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls and no one to share it with and are chasing after the wind your whole life. So prioritising friendships and relationships is more important than success and it's the best way to help each other endure the difficulties, the evil, the injustice, the oppression of this life. And then lastly he says, friendship is better than popularity, which is part of the same thing, the value of companionship. And he has this uh, this picture of... um, Um, uh, two men a poor but wise youth who becomes king and then becomes foolish at the end and then there's a successor who comes after that poor youth so the youth comes out of prison becomes king and while he's king he says everyone followed him there was no end to the people who were before them or him Um, all who lived and walked under the sun, followed the youth. Oh, sorry. Yes. Well, they all followed the king's successor. I don't know if there's two or three here. Anyway, (laughs) there's a youth, there's a king, and there's a successor. Um, I've struggled to understand whether this youth is the king or whether this youth gets replaced by the king and then with the king's successor. But I think the point is still clear. At the end of the day, the popularity of that king passes. In verse 16, there was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. So all the popularity of that king passed in a flash. And that's a picture of someone who's mistaken popularity for friendship. Real friendship is not just being popular. And there couldn't be a more penetrating word for our age where social media has become a substitute for relationship. I don't know uh, if there's anything less meaningful than ploughing your efforts and chasing likes on Facebook. How many likes can I get for this post? What an utterly meaningless activity. A thousand million likes from people who don't care about you. It's better to have one friend who'll give you a hug when you need it than a million followers on Facebook who couldn't give two hoots about you. Ebony and I have experienced great comfort and compassion from our church. um, And uh, I thank you for that. Those of us who have drawn alongside of us when we needed you. We have been to another church where it took us two years. We were there two years and we couldn't find any of that. We tried desperately to penetrate the relationships uh, with people in in that church, but we couldn't. And uh, we're glad to say that here that's not the case. We've found companionship, we've found friendship, and in times when we've needed it, you've been there for us. I thank you. And I want to remind us, you, me, all of us together, that the way to cope with injustice with evil, with oppression, 
with a broken life while we wait for the judgment of God which will make everything right. The way to cope with that is to draw alongside each other, to be there for each other when we need each other. There's nothing more tragic than being in a church and feeling lonely. We're not able to reverse the fall, friends. We're not able to eradicate justice. But we are able to wait for God to do that and trust that he will do it. And we are able to comfort each other until that day. Amen.